welcome, welcome to Let's Talk Diaspora. We are on season two, and we have been talking about the uncomfortable middle. And I think today's session or episode, we're going to be talking about a big word, bud, and I might need your help in making sure I pronounce it correctly and mm-hmm. you might need to give me a definition. Um, I think the word is contextualization. Um, but yeah, can you help me there? Yeah, contextualization. Uh, primarily what we're going to be talking about is contextualization and evangelism. So if you've been listening, season two is about this uncomfortable middle living in the tension of these two extremes. And I, I think contextualization has become a lightning rod word in mission circles. And if you if this word is new to you, I'll, I'll do my best to just uh, give a brief definition. But it's the idea of saying, yes, we have the gospel that is this unchanging message, but we're wanting to communicate it across cultures and religious backgrounds and languages that aren't the same as ours. And so one just very simple example is most people in the West operate from a guilt innocence mindset. The Bible definitely presents the gospel in a guilt innocence mindset. It talks about that we have a penalty of sin and that penalty is death. Like it's something we did and we get a penalty. That's kind of the idea. Um, There's other parts of the world that are power and fear, honor and shame. Those same things are in the gospel. So if you think all the way back to the Garden of Eden, you see all three of these. You have uh, Adam and Eve. They sin. Yes, they did wrong. They sinned against God and they felt guilt, but they also felt shame because it said they felt shame because they were naked. So all that to say is contextualization is just trying to take the unchanging message of the gospel and relate it best to the people that are hearing it saying, yes, we want to be true to the gospel, but we understand that our way of communicating it may not actually connect with the person that's hearing it. That's a lot to think about. I can, I mean, I even start thinking about just the different religions there are and the different beliefs that there are um, even in within the religions. So you've talked a little bit about, you know, how we see the world, I guess, um, in that shame, um, blame, power, those types of pieces. But now even thinking about the religions, um, I know one big thing for me um, as I look at contextualization is to go visit a temple, a Hindu temple, and start to ask myself some of those questions of, you know, why do they do this or what is this? And, um, you know, what's important even in my own religion and the things that I do sitting in a, on a bench or a chair or sitting on the floor um, are some of those simple things. So are some, some of those things also in this contextualization piece, bud? Yeah, thinking about expression. So uh, you mentioned um, Hindus, and and we're not we're not suggesting like uh, you have a church of Hindus that you know have these gods set up. And it's like no, but we still worship Jesus. That that would be called syncretism, where you're blending things. Contextualization isn't always syncretism, but I think it's very very important to understand what they're already doing, what they're already thinking, how they're already expressing worship. And we just want to direct that misguided worship to the worship of the one true God. The form may look something that's very, very foreign to us in a Western, uh, you know, Christendom type setting of 
yeah, their worship may not be on pews. It may be on the floor. They may have candles and incense and you're like, oh, bud, incense, that's wrong. Well, it's not necessarily wrong if you have a reason behind it that's biblical. So that is like the tension. The overwhelming complexity of contextualization is there are multiple layers of understanding. What does church look like? What does discipleship look like? What language do I use? Do I use, for example, is it okay for me to use Muslim religious terms whenever I'm talking about the gospel? That's that's kind of a hot topic. Mm-hmm. Um, all of those things come in, but I think maybe if I could just give a starting point to start thinking about worldview of people that you are engaging. And hopefully once you start to see the complexity of this, you'll understand like why we're sort of an advocate of having a focus people group or focus segment, because if you're trying to engage multiple religions, multiple language groups, you're, you're honestly not going to do um, a very good job with effective contextualization. And, and I think we see that Jesus contextualized the gospel because he took on flesh. I think we see Paul contextualizing the gospel of how he proclaimed it to other people. I think we look at missions history and we see that people use contextualization um, and saw the gospel multiply. So if you think contextualization is bad, just stick with us. We want to, we want to walk in this uncomfortable middle, but four questions to get you started on thinking through worldview. What I want to propose is every single culture, religion, and worldview answers these four questions. And it's a good place to start. Ask, where did it all begin? Every single culture has this idea of where did it begin? If it's a Judeo-Christian, Abrahamic faith, uh, Jewish people, Muslims, Christians, they're going to have a similar starting point of how it began. Uh, Hindus and Buddhists and Sikhs are going to have a different view. The second question is, what went wrong? Why is the world the way it is? The third question is, is there any hope? And the fourth question is, how is it going to end? I think that's a great place, Rebecca, for people to begin. uh, Really, what you're doing is when you're asking those questions, you're doing research. But that can help better inform you in how to contextualize uh, the gospel. So say those four one more time. So where did it all begin? Yep. Where did it begin? One, two, what went wrong? So from a Christian worldview, we're talking about sin, but other cultures are going to look at it differently. Third, is there any hope? Every world religion has some sort of hope. Like, um, you know, for for Hindus, they're they're wanting to break the cycle of samsara, of reincarnation. Like that is the hope. Then the fourth question is, how is it going to end? What's at the end? Which I think this all goes back to that research thing that you keep coming up with. These questions sound very similar to that research piece that we need to kind of go in and look at each place, each person we're going to share with. And we need to start learning these questions, asking these questions, learning the answers to these questions, I guess, in their context. Yeah, I'm obviously an, an advocate for research. I say that often, don't I, Rebecca? You do. <laughs> uh but I think it's important in the conversation of contextualization. When we're talking specifically about evangelism, I think another important thing that we we research, and research is maybe a strong word, but just learning what's been what's been used historically among a segment of people and what has been its response, right? So just what is a best practice 
what's not worked, just learning from people that's gone before us and, and understanding that something that's been tried, it wasn't necessarily evil or wrong. It could be that we learn something about the culture that we make just a little tweak and then it begins to really connect with people at a heart level so they can truly understand the gospel. Because my fear is it's not, it's, there's a multiple, I don't know, fear is not the right word. The, the concern first is people aren't hearing the gospel. The second you know, concern is people are hearing the gospel in a foreign way, which means they're not really hearing it at the heart level. So when we talk about evangelism, it's really those those two kind of concerns. We we need to know that people are hearing the gospel, but the second is they need to hear it in a way that connects with their heart. Mm-hmm. Well, it reminds me too is um, I remember as people came over um, to visit us when we were overseas and preparing them, um, we would always give these these are things you need to be careful not to do, and these are things that you need you know it's okay. Um, but I also in that, I'd always be afraid because it so- sounded like we were telling him, you know, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this. And I was afraid they wouldn't share because of all these things, all of these don'ts. So I think we do have to also think about what's, you know, what's the worst thing that can happen? What's the best thing that can happen? And of course, tr- trusting in the spirit as he leads um, in it as well. But um not to say that we shouldn't think of these contextualization pieces, but I do feel like we need to be careful not to do so many, be careful about this and be careful about that, that no one's out there sharing. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. So maybe uh, let's kind of define the two extremes and then ask the question, like, what's the worst thing that will happen? What's the best thing that will happen? Uh, Because I think that's just a very logical way to approach it. Maybe I'm just weird, but the, the two ex, the two extremes of of contextualization is you you have people who say uh, the gospel is the gospel it needs no contextualization meaning um, as long as it's in a language that the person can understand there should be no consideration of their worldview you can just say John three sixteen for God so loved the world that he gave his only son and then that's 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 it there's no contextualization. I could push against that a little bit, I think with a biblical basis, that's not the point of pushing against that, but saying that that is, that's one of the ditches I would say that people fall into is no contextualization. The other extreme is over contextualization to the point that the gospel becomes unclear. So I think the key word in that is Rebecca is gospel clarity in each of those ditches, there's not gospel clarity. It's somewhere in the middle where you have gospel clarity. And when you say gospel clarity, what is it that you're meaning, bud? Yeah, gospel clarity. So if we think of what what Paul writing to the Corinthians said, he he said, "I, I passed on to you, my paraphrase, I passed on to you of what was utmost importance, that according to the scriptures, Jesus lived, he died, he was buried, he rose again. So like, I would say that is the core of the gospel, but the gospel is also understanding our sinfulness, understanding the nature of God. And so if a person has a, a wrong understanding of God, I have to begin at a way that helps understand that. Because if they don't have a right understanding of who God is, how can they understand they've sinned against a God? Or if they don't have a concept of sin, so a person's starting point is different 
I can say those words that Jesus lived, died, and rose again, but if there's not the historical view of who God is or what sin is, that is not clear. Does that make sense? Like gospel clarity, like the the narrow point of the focus is that truth, but we have to be clear and helping people grasp those truths, which means I might have to talk about something else to get them to that point. Which I understand completely because I know my... My first inclination in going and share the gospel with someone from the very first um, time, I I want them to understand that Jesus is God. But I learned very quickly that in some context, if I go in with that, I lose whoever I'm sharing with automatically by sharing that Jesus is God himself. Um, So that is just kind of one example of you've got to kind of find some other direction some other avenues to go in still sharing the truths but maybe not that truth at the very beginning so um yeah i understand completely but <laughs> yeah that's that's a great a great point so like for our hindu friends saying jesus is god is not a big deal because they're like oh great another god they're happy <laughs> to know oh jesus is god i've heard of this jesus he's cool and that's not a hurdle right but the hurdle is is they don't have a they don't have a, a good understanding of of the one true God. And so it's like you you have to start with like almost a creation narrative. But for our Muslim friends, um, saying Jesus is God is like not that that's untrue. It's not that we hide that, but we have to help them understand how Jesus could be God and still have this truth that they believe that there is only one God. Mm-hmm. And so there's there's just this process of of unpacking, and then you know another I think hot hot topic uh, in discussions where you see polarization. We're talking about Muslims is using the Quran in conversations mm-hmm. with Muslims or with Hindus using the idea of some of their religious and cultural expressions of. Um, for example, using a coconut to share the gospel, they typically use coconuts in some of their worship. But if I'm using a coconut to share the gospel, is that is that too much? If I'm talking about a, a religious leader, a guru, and I say, well, I follow a guru as well, but I talk about Jesus, is that too much? So these are some of the hot topics. Re- Rebecca, uh, you, you lived in South Asia where there's a lot of Hindus, there's a lot of Muslims. Uh, what what did you find as as a bridge? Sometimes we call it a bridge, right? What does a bridge do? It gets you from point A to point B, but you don't live on a bridge. Homeless people live under bridges. We don't want to be homeless people. We just want to get over the bridge. But Rebecca, what what are some examples of maybe a, your favorite bridge uh, that's that's contextual? Well, I mean, I found using stories that related to them, scripture, like Bible stories that related to them, and maybe even starting with the story they may already be familiar with, um, that was easier in the Muslim context than the Hindu context, but still using those stories and sharing those stories. Um, And I found the woman at the well was a great story for me to share or the bleeding woman. Um, and, and then being able to bridge using my own story with those stories, um, was a great bridge for me. Yeah. So what, what I I heard, I just want to, I think everyone got this, but you being a woman, primarily talking to women, you were using Jesus stories that involved women like 
the woman at the well who who most commentators would say this woman was probably of uh you know she could be a prostitute she wasn't well known in the right ways and oftentimes in uh, muslim culture women are degraded if they do anything wrong they also too take on that reputation but they say oh jesus is for this type of woman the the bleeding woman there are going to be women who who are experiencing things and need healing and mm-hmm. say um well, Jesus, Jesus healed, and that that is a common Muslim that's in the Quran. And you can say, well, Jesus still heals today. Can we pray for you? Is that kind of how that that plays out? For sure. And I mean, again, and that's what I found in the contextualization in South Asia was I was sharing with women and not usually with men either. So that's you know the sharing those stories with the women um, were a better way than me going and sharing with a man in that culture as well. So maybe I'll give an example for a Muslim man. So my, my favorite uh, way that I communicate the gospel with Muslims specifically is similar. I'm using stories that they are familiar with, but they are in the Bible. So, um, you know, Muslims every year have, have this festival called uh, Eid al-Adha, where they're sacrificing an animal in remembrance of the sacrifice of Abraham. Um, they, they would call him Ibrahim. So what I do is I talk about, and, and especially in South Asia, they use this language as they cor- korbani uh, or korban is just the, the word for sacrifice. So I tell korban stories, starting with Adam and Eve in the garden, that God did the first sacrifice, moving on to Abraham, which they know. And as I'm telling the story, I'm engaging them because they know the story. I'll ask questions. So who was it? What did he do? And they're they're telling the story with me, but it's, it's contextualized. Even though I'm just telling the Bible story, it's contextualized because I know that's what they know and that's where they're at. I think contextualization could sometimes be defined of, starting to share the gospel where they're at in a way that they understand. Then so I'm going through Abraham and then Moses and then John the Baptist is in the Quran in Arabic his name is Yahya. And this is how it points to Jesus is we so not not just I point to Jesus but Yahya points at Jesus and says behold the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And then you just wrap all of that up and say Jesus is the sacrifice that took on shame to cover our shame. Jesus was the sacrifice that died as a substitute uh, so that we don't have to die, that he he died. He, he was the sacrifice that shed his blood. Like Moses put the blood on the doorpost, the angel of death will pass over us because the blood has saving power. And so we don't hide from the fact of clearly communicating the life, death, and burial, and resurrection of Jesus, but communicating in a way that someone can say, okay, I'm following this, this grand narrative of the scripture. And I think another thing that I hear you saying, and I I feel the same with um, sharing with clarity, is really getting to that point of understanding sin or our lostness. Um, We all have to get to that in the story. Sometimes we can talk about how God has provided all of these great things for us and that we can have all these great things. But the ultimate thing that he's provided for us is um, taking away our shame, our lostness, our sin, those things that we're all in every religion, we're all working. Every religion works towards that relationship with God or works towards being able to be like God or God themselves. And 
figuring out what is it that's keeping you from that and talking about that brokenness or that piece that we're all missing. Yeah, that's a, a great, a great point. You know, with, with Hindus, um, you know, Muslims have a distorted view of sin, but they have at least an idea of sin, right? They, it, their view is distorted. Oh, I didn't sin. I just did wrong. Uh, so they they minimize sin, but for our our Hindu friends, sometimes the idea of sin is just totally foreign. Uh, Rebecca, how are, are there ways or bridges that you've used with with Hindus, or maybe even just talking about the idea of sin? I think a big part of it is we're all wanting to do and be good in some way. So um, for me is talking about, you know, all the ways that we are trying to do good, but we never can do quite enough. I mean, I've found that I've talked to people at diff- in different religions in different ways about that. The first one that comes to mind, of course, is <laughs> that I've talked to recently, a Muslim woman, you know, she's kept talking about all the good things she was trying to do. I said, but are you sure all of those good things are going to get you to heaven? And I think Hindus as well, they tend to are trying to go and, you know, to the God as many times as they can and do the different rituals that they do to, you know, make, make sure that that God is good with them, (laughs) whatever God that might be. Yeah. With, with Hindus, you know, they, they, they believe in re reincarnation, and so it's it's the idea of how well I do in this life is going to affect what my outcome is in the next life. And if I'm a human this time, uh, I have a lot to lose, right? Like I could be an ant or something else. I have a lot to lose. So there is this desire to do good. Whenever you find bad Hindus, like they don't care. Uh, it's like you're talking to a secular person. But what I've found for a Hindu who is really desiring to be a good Hindu and that that even saying that sounds weird because what does that mean? You ask a hundred Hindus and you're going to get 75 answers. Uh, but they're just, they're, they're trying, they're, they're being devout. How, how they know is, is talking about um, Jesus as our guru, because most Hindus that are really striving, they have a guru that they follow. There's kind of this list of this is what a good guru is. And you look at the list and you're like, Oh, this is, this is kind of like Jesus. Some of those things is they're not a lover of money. Um, they don't get married like they're, you know, celibate. They can do miracles. And so what, what I do just as a bridge, this doesn't work with, you know, nominal Hindus, but if someone's following a guru, I say, Hey, do you follow a guru? What's his, what's his name? Uh, it's interesting. Hey, I follow a guru. Can I tell you about him? And I just start telling stories about Jesus. My, my guru, had a miraculous birth. The angels actually announced his his birth. He lived a pure life. He never married. He wasn't a lover of money. He was actually homeless and had a you know a group of followers around him that were his bhaktis, which basically just means disciples in in uh, Hindi. And he he could raise people from the dead. He gave the blind people sight. All of these things. And I say, and he actually he died, but he came back to life. Have you ever heard of a guru who could do anything like that? And they're like, no, no, I need to know about this guru. And I said, well, let me tell you, my guru actually says he knows the way to break the cycle of reincarnation so that whenever you, 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 you die, you never die again, that you live eternally. 
and that connects. That's just the contextualization connecting to where they're at. Does the Bible say that Jesus breaks the cycle of reincarnation? No, it doesn't. But it says, too, that when we die with Christ, we live with Christ, and that life is eternal. So in a sense, if a person thinks that way, me saying that is not a biblical truth per se, but it connects to where they're at. And that's where it gets gray in contextualization. Some of you just got really uncomfortable when I said that. Rebecca, did you get uncomfortable? Of course I did. (laughs) (laughs) It's a very uncomfortable place to be. But that's the middle where, yes, we could just say, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Let me tell you about the four spiritual laws. But if they're a Hindu, you know, I'm not limiting God. So please hear hear me say, I've seen someone who's very ill-equipped, who did not contextualize, and the, there was a God-prepared person who heard the gospel and responded. Um, but I I see that just um, as, as an exception oftentimes. The other thing with Hindus... Uh, in contextualization is they're they're seeking power they're seeking healing and just boldly praying in the name of jesus for miracles and another portion of our audience just got really uncomfortable but that is something we see jesus do something he called his disciples to do it's something that we see happening across the globe less so in the west but in in south asia and africa you're seeing jesus still heal people um, through, through prayer and people recognize that power and it draws them to want to know more about Jesus. But we've talked about Hindus and Muslims. I'll, I will say out of the, um, different backgrounds, religions of folks that I've shared with, um, Buddhists are the ones that I have the hardest time finding that connection. You've got any good connections for sharing with a Buddhist? They they are uh, the hardest. Uh, you know, a, bu- a Buddhist worldview uh, focuses on the idea of suffering and karma. And so I don't know this is a good answer. I'm just sharing from experience because honestly, I don't know if we've got a lot figured out with, with Buddhists mm-hmm. and contextualization. Uh, I want to talk about suffering. Where, where did suffering come from? Uh, I'm asking more diagnostic questions. It's like, I'm trying to learn, but I've found these questions kind of make Buddhists think, where did suffering come from? What is the end of suffering? The other is with karma. How did karma start? Like who started karma? And that's more an ontological question than the theological question, but it makes people think same thing with, with anybody that believes in reincarnation, Sikhs believe in reincarnation as well. Asking the question that's really an ontological, just simple knowledge question is if you believe in reincarnation, why is the population of the world exponentially multiplying? Not just people, but animals, because we're we're raising livestock, uh, you know, in these farms, like the number of species and the number of, you know, for lack of a better word, animals, bugs, fish, people are exponential. Where, Where are they coming from? Because their understanding of reincarnation is when karma started, when, when the cycle started, Everyone who existed, existed. There's there's no un- initial creation. It's just recycling. And it begins to insert doubt into their minds. And then one question I ask with anyone that believes in reincarnation after I've shared the gospel with them to the best of my ability is I say, hey, if, if you're right and I'm wrong, what do I have to lose? I'll get another shot. It's okay. Mm-hmm. If I'm right and you're wrong, there's there's eternal implications. 
Wow. There's a lot of things to consider. Um, as we're thinking about this piece, what are some good resources or maybe some best practices that we should be able to share with our audience for them to be able to start looking at some of these things themselves? What are some ideas you would give, Bud? Yeah, I think one uh, that I would recommend just as a general baseline is, is a book written by uh, Mike Shipman called Any Three. We'll put a link in the notes. And it's, it's not about necessarily contextualization. It's just about a process to have a conversation with anyone, anytime, anywhere about the gospel. That's what any three means, like A-N-Y, anywhere, anytime, any place. And it's simply get connected, which we've talked about in a previous episode, get connected with them, get to God, have a God conversation. Rebecca, you've, you've emphasized this, get to sin or lostness, get to the gospel, and then get to a decision. And then what you do is the contextualization, you just fit into those kind of those categories. He pulls this straight from John four. It's, it's a great book. It has a very biblical basis. Um, another book that I would recommend for, for Hindus is it's a book called Christian barriers to Jesus. And it's really a book about contextualization, the Hindu worldview and how the gospel is not offensive necessarily to Hindus, but Christianity is. And so disconnecting and pulling kind of the cultural baggage of Christianity apart from the gospel and who Jesus is, which there's, there's another group of our listeners who just got uncomfortable with that as well. <laughs> uh, Rebecca, resource I was about to tell you about, but is um, I've seen some videos online. They're on YouTube called easy evangelism. And there's some great ways and helps particularly on the Hindu Muslim side um, of sharing um, the gospel. Yeah, that's a great, great YouTube channel. We'll put a link to that, that channel as well. Uh, gives some, some tips on contextual language and just different ways to share the gospel, other ways to get connected, other ways to offer people a Bible from a different background of like, just how we, how we do that. So that, that is great. Uh, a book that's, um, Somewhat controversial, but it is. It has been. It's it's dated. It's 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 a little old, but it's been practiced and well worn. Process called the the Camel Method by Kevin Greeson. Um, that that is a great resource if you're working with Muslims and you're okay with using the Quran as a bridge. Mm. Uh, another another book that's new that we'll, we'll actually have him on the podcast, Lord willing. Uh, Fouad Masri with Crescent Project wrote a book called Sharing Jesus with Muslims. It's a very practical guide of how to do that. Um, I will say that it also references some Quranic bridging as well. So that that's something that I would say you have to wrestle with yourself. So Rebecca, what what advice would you give someone? Because we're not we're not saying what level of contextualization a person should should take. We're just saying this is a tension we have to live in. I think we have to contextualize, and we also have to recognize you can go too far. So how would you recommend someone just to learn for themselves what what is acceptable? Well, one is I would start you know start praying for these different people groups, um, begin praying about a particular one that the Lord wants you to begin to get some training on and do, do, do some research on um, and start researching and reading about and getting um, to know that particular people group or that particular um, religion background, maybe at least. 
Um, and then learning one of these best practices and learning how to do it and do it well and share it and then start sharing it and trying it. And you're going to learn through the sharing and the trying. Um, that's where you're really going to learn what works, what doesn't work um, and doing and it. And it be be ready to um, I, I don't like to use the word fail because I think the Lord uses whatever we do. Um, but be ready to make mistakes and to learn from them and to grow from them and to be able to see this Holy Spirit at work. Um, but I think that's the main thing is just starting to get started um, and being able to, you know, try some things out and then go from there. Yeah, I would say just a couple of, of suggestions in uh, getting getting started is I I think it's it's highly um valuable if you can get connected to someone who's already doing it mm-hmm. um, just as a model yeah you can watch youtube videos but there there is honestly a level of fear from going to watching a youtube video to going to your muslim <laughs> neighbor and sharing the gospel and i understand that uh and so i i would say find someone who's already doing it that is uh, a great way to get started i'm not saying you have to you could just go do it but if you feel like this apprehension of like, I, I just need to learn a little bit more. Um, and I don't mean head knowledge. I mean, practically, what does a conversation look like? Because a canned, you know, gospel uh, conversation on a YouTube video, that's not how it always goes. People ask questions. They have objections. It's a conversation. So I think seeing that happen is super important. Whenever you learn a best practice, I encourage people to use it a hundred times. And you're like, whoa, I got to share the gospel 100 times. Yes, please share the gospel 100 times. But what I see happen often is someone learns a tool or a method and they do it like three times and they're like, oh, that didn't work. And they go on to the next tool and they try it three times and they're like, oh, that didn't work. Like, That's going to happen with every method. <laughs> every single method, you're, you are going to have that and you're, you're not going to get proficient and confident in a method that that what we're saying, use a best practice, something that a lot of people are using and that God is blessing. It's not our method that is what's bringing people into the kingdom, but we do see throughout history and through practical experience, there are certain ways that God is working at certain times. And we just want to grab onto those best practices and say, to the best of our ability, we want to be faithful to the scripture. We want to look at the world and see where and how God is working. And we want to join him in that, in that way, in this time, in this place. And as you talked about ways for people to get involved or to or come up, um, alongside someone already doing it, there's so many avenues to do that. And I will encourage you to um, reach out to me. My um, contact information will be in our show notes. I would love to be able to connect you with um, some folks that are out there doing it, wherever you might be. Um, I will help you find um, that person or those people to connect with Um the accountability is also important, the training and the accountability that you get from connecting with others um, like Global Gates or International Commission or Global Frontier Missions. Um, there are just a lot of groups that are out there, particularly reaching those that are here among us, uh, refugees and immigrants in the diaspora. So um, please reach out. Yeah, great word, Rebecca. Uh, thank you for listening to this episode. We we barely scratched the surface. Like we could have a whole season on contextualization. Some of you listening, you're like, uh, yeah, I'm wrestling with this. Thank you. It was helpful. Some of this, it's brand brand new. Uh, hey, dialogue with us. Let us know what would continue to be helpful 
as you seek uh, to reach the lost among the unreached in the diaspora and make disciples and glorify Jesus. Thanks for listening to Let's Talk Diaspora. Haradi Jews are some of the most unreached people in the world. But God is moving in this community, and we sense that the time is ripe to increase our efforts to reach them with the good news. The key to this outreach is prayer. We invite you to journey with us into the world of the Haradium and to meet Haradi men and women, as well as the believers who serve them, and to join us in the critical work of prayerful intercession. Start learning and praying with us today with a free digital download, or you can request a free copy at upgnorthamerica.com forward slash resources.